1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Michael J. Turner about his new book, Radicalism and Reputation: The Career of Brontë O'Brien. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be here. Oh, we're pleased to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
0: Well, uh, I'm from England. I was born in Berkshire, uh, about an hour from London. I was educated at Oxford where I did my first degree and also my doctorate, and I ended up here in America at Appalachian State University as a distinguished professor in 2008.
1: Congratulations. Thank you. Now, was Brontë O'Brien a subject that you had done a lot of previous work on, or what was it that led you to write a biography about him?
0: Well, most of my work has been on reform movements and I was interested in him uh, in a small way uh, when I was doing other projects in in previous years. And I I started to write some things about the way that uh, British radicals viewed America. And he sort of came up in, in that. So there was Uh, a a reason to look more deeply into his ideas. And as I did that, uh, and I finished the the other project I was working on, I thought that there might be some mileage in uh, taking a study of O'Brien a little bit further. I did a few conference papers just to uh, test the water and see if there was interest in this and if there was uh, really any life in it, and uh, they they went well, so I thought I would press on, and I ended up doing uh, doing the, doing the
1: book. Okay, um, what is it about Bronte O'Brien that makes him so significant? Because he's not a, a, a necessarily a name that pops up at first blush when you're looking at uh, British political history in the early and mid 19th century. I mean, there you're talking about people like, say, Lord Grey. Or uh, Fergus O'Connor or Daniel O'Connell, and, and while Bronte O'Brien, as you you know explain in your book, was uh, uh, you know was significant, he doesn't necessarily come across as a person of sort of the the at, at you know at the forefront of change. What does he do over the course of his life that that makes him uh, a figure worthy of attention today?
0: Well, he's for a fairly short time, he was a, a true radical celebrity. And you're right. I mean, there are many of these other figures who are more well-known and uh, overshadow him. Um, and, of course, his rivalry with O'Connor was one of the really the defining things about his career and why O'Brien's career didn't go the way that he expected and wanted it to go. Um, but his his significance I think is that he's he's uh, he's there uh, at the time when reform aspirations really took off and when a lot seemed possible real change seemed possible and he managed to put together um, some ideas and, and and a program of realistic policies um that that really lasted uh, and and although they get reshaped and so on later on by some of his successors and into the 20th century by center and center left uh, politics in in Britain some of those uh, some of the same vocabulary and some of the same ideas are, are still there so he does have this this lasting influence even if it's uh, combined with the influence of other people but nevertheless to to overlook his role in that just seems to be uh, a little a little bit unfair and a little bit uh, not not really respecting the history uh, and the 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 record really of the effort by reformers um, who were interested in, in 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 changing, who were interested in thinking about what Britain could become, what it might look like. Um, so I think his role in all of that um, deserves maybe to you know a, a bit more attention than than perhaps it's received. I think for historians of Chartism, he's well known, but then of course outside uh, that that field maybe in in broader um, reform politics, uh, maybe he 's not so so well known and, and that 's probably uh, you know a, a good reason why uh, I, I hope that the book sort of reaches some of those people and that they 're able to see uh, maybe the role that he did play
1: that 's one of the approaches you take in your book that I thought was very interesting because in your beginning chapter, you, you get into the historiography of of Bronte O'Brien. And it seems that so many people since his death have sort of taken him and made him into uh, something that he wasn't necessarily sort of this uh, bridge between the radicalism of the early 19th century and the emerging socialist movement of the, of of the uh, later in the century. And what, you've done in your book is you've kind of gotten to look at what o'brien himself was doing and how he was arguing things and kind of paring away this sense of well we're going to use him as this intermediary between this uh early radical thought and this later uh left-wing thinking
0: yeah he's a, i think he is a he is a link uh, a link figure um i i some of the things about him are, are maybe a, a, a bit uh, like i said i mean there's a, there there is a, a certain neglect of his of of his true uh, you know or, or maybe the extent of his importance but at the same time for those who were enthusiasts for um for uh, the, on the political left um and particularly in the 20th century um you know lo- looking at him as a kind of a a model or an inspirational sign, so I mean some of that might it could, it could be argued some of that is perhaps a little bit overblown um, because you know that the, the, there were there probably were more influential figures even during his lifetime um, indeed there were um, and i mean he that 's one of the things that he he uh, was perhaps a bit jealous about um, that he hadn 't received the the kind of recognition and and also the material rewards in some respect that he he thought he he deserved for his sort of sacrifices and for his efforts on behalf of the people and on behalf of reform causes. Um, But he he certainly is a a link figure, uh, but he's not only that. I mean, I think you could, there's a case as well to say that um, looking backwards, looking back to the 1780s, the 1790s, before he was born, some of the things that he read in his youth, and some of the things in his twenties and in his thirties, that when he was forming his ideas and forming his program, some of the things he read uh, previous to his own career, you could see him as a, like a culmination of, of uh, attitudes uh, and impulse, reform impulses, as well as something, uh, somebody who leads to the future as well. So there is you could you could look both ways, but I think as a as a link figure. Um, it, it, he he deserves to be seen in 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 that way as well.
1: I was wondering. I, I mean, in reading the book, he really. Uh, it, it's understandable why he is so inspirational because you describe he comes from. He doesn't come from the elites. He is not a person of great means. He really uh, is. You know, he he has a, a, a bit of a struggle to become a. Uh, prominent figure, and it's one that really speaks. I, I thought to his abilities as a person, uh, as a, a writer, and, 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 and as a polemicist.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's. Uh, he was he was anti elite. Um, he 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 certainly. Uh, I I think if you if you think about his his birth and his his, uh, his you know growing up in Ireland. Uh, rural Ireland, a small, a small place, uh, not particularly an important place. Um, I think even today, uh, Granard, there in County Longford, I think even today it's got less than fifteen hundred people living there. I mean, it's it's a it's a um, uh, not not a privileged background at all, uh, not a particularly hopeful background. His father, of course, died when he was young and uh, that's got to have an effect as well uh not just uh, emotionally and psychologically but also of course on your material your material uh, circumstances um with with the with the breadwinner gone and um i, I think it's a, it it does speak to his um uh the things that built his career that it's really through his his um intellectual development his 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 drive to, to make himself something, um, the, 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 that, that counts for a lot, definitely. I don't think he was they weren't I think I think the family the family was not really at, at the absolute bottom. Um, I think as a child, his position was probably a little bit better than many of the people around in that in that part of central Ireland there. Um, and the fact that he was spotted and given an opportunity to go to a, a good school, um, you know a sort of experimental school, the edgeworth family set up this school it was a uh, in a town um a little bit to the southwest of of where o 'Brien grew up, so it was local um it, you know it, it may have been that he he you know had he never been spotted, he probably never would have really risen to the to the uh, in intellectual terms in the way that he did but the fact that he was able to go there and he thrived in that environment and it was a this this kind of experimental schooling was really to push uh the individual to to uh to improve uh, and it was a monitorial school. So the the elder children would be trained and then would teach the younger children He ends up as the chief monitor in that school He's given you know, what there's a story about him being given a wonderful um, a Gift of these very valuable books because he was such a good student. He goes on to of course to university Trains in the law um, Moves to London. I, I you know th- these these are things which were not inevitable um, but by his own drive and by his his will to make something of himself, despite uh, not a particularly easy upbringing, they they were as I say they weren't dirt poor, but they were not rich. Uh, they were they, they, there was no reason to suppose that he would be going off to London to train as a lawyer, um, but he but he but he was able to do that um, and he won prizes for his academic accomplishments. He, he was obviously a smart individual, a clever individual. And he managed to find people to push him and to give him opportunities, so that he could develop his mind, uh, and his reading, and and all those uh, the skills that go with that. Um, and that's the way that really his entry into London and into uh, eventually into into radical politics.
1: That move to London uh, really struck me because. You know, given what was going on in Ireland during the time. This is when you're uh, he's coming of age during uh, you know Daniel O'Connell and his uh, you know movement for emancip- Catholic emancipation, and you're starting to see a more uh, assertive Catholic Irish identity in the island's politics. And yet, when he moves to London, he really is in effect. Charting a course that would have been very different had he stayed in Ireland. What, why did he move to London as opposed to staying in Ireland? And, and and why did he end up moving away from this career in in the law to one as an activist?
0: Well, he he had to he had to go to London to finish his qualifications. Um, so that was that was one reason. Um, I think also maybe the idea that there wasn't. Um, there would there wouldn't be so many opportunities, um, uh, partly because of the religious disabilities and, and you know the very the social and political problems that there were in Ireland that you just referred to. So London might have been a place uh, where he thought, well, maybe there'll be opportunity there a- a- as well. Um, with regard to abandoning the law as a career, um, he the way he explained it himself was that he realised that. Um, the, the law was corrupt and um, was about exploitation. It was, it was one of the tools that the, the, the people with the money and the property used to keep everybody else down. Uh, it was, you know, so he, there was that sort of turning against it. But he probably wouldn't have thought that way had he not started to attend some meetings and read uh, material that was around at the time. You know, London was in a, it was a, it was a place in in great excitement. At this time, because of the the reform crisis in in, uh, in in England that led to the Great Reform Act in 1832, so he goes there, really at the time when a lot of this is kicking off, and so he's drawn into some of these meetings and he associates with some of these people that are pressing for um, electoral reform, electoral rights, uh, parliamentary reform, um, and so he gets uh, you know he associates with some of these people, starts to read more, start and, that, and that's really again. When it comes to the opportunity that comes that, that for him to start writing about these reform questions that are so up in the air at the mo- you know, at that moment, um, and that's really how he how he gets into into that, and he decides he likes it, he decides he's good at it, he has a go at speaking at some of these meetings. He's, uh, some of the uh, more well known uh, reformers at the time are encouraging him to do that, and that's his opening really into this this other path that he decides he wants to take. Um, uh, so it's really the, the, the time and the place coming together with this young man who's, who's got these, uh, um, you know, ambitions, who's got these talents. He wants to put these talents to use. He wants to be noticed. Um, so it's really that, that combination of circumstances which came together uh, just at the, at the, at the right, the, sort of the right combination for him to have these opportunities to get involved in reform politics.
1: It seems that even though there was this opportune moment for him, though, was that he was still constrained in a lot of ways, because politics in uh, Britain during this period, especially, was very much of a rich person's game. You uh, could get elected to Parliament if you could get people to vote for you. But at the time, there was no income, there was no salary for for, par- for members of Parliament, so you had to be able to earn a living. And And, and while he... Uh, and so there's this question of how do you make a living as an activist and i was wondering was, was that a, a contributing factor in, in, in what uh, drew him into journalism or and, and in what ways did he uh, or in what ways did he try to uh, shape his career with an with an eye towards uh, you know earning a living while working as an activist well that i think the
0: two things that you you mentioned there the, the, that that's really the answer to to, to this uh, he, you know that yes he needs to earn some money um but also because this is a time of excitement because it's a time where reform seems to be coming uh, and of course after 1832 uh, although um uh, the electorate is not expanded uh, as greatly as some of these radicals really wanted. And nevertheless, the door has been opened. Uh, and the, in the 1830s, you start to get changes. Um, yes, in, in Ireland too, but, you know, but back in Ireland. But you start to get other very important reforms that are brought in in the 1830s. So it, it looks like the door is opening. So there would be an opportunity to, first of all, to have a career um, as, a, as an activist, primarily as a writer. Uh, and that and that takes off, and he 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 makes his mark really quite quickly. It's it's within a couple of years of arriving in London, he makes his mark quite quickly, and he's already got a pen name, you know, by which he's known, Brontë. Um, and that, so so it's making a living, and it's the opportunity to exert some influence, to be involved in this very exciting movement where the potential already seems to be there to start to make some fundamental changes in 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 the British in the British state. Uh, And then through that, you can start to get some of the social and economic justice that you're seeking as well. So you can get rid of this very top down hierarchical structure with the elites in control of everything. Um, So it's those two things together, you know, the the opportunity to make a living, but also the opportunity to exert some influence and be part of something that's meaningful and important and will bring change.
1: How is it that he's able to emerge so quickly as a journalist? Is it that he just met the moment uh did he was he regarded as an exceptionally able writer among the ranks of the uh, journalists uh, among the radicals uh, what was that that allowed him to establish such a reputation so quickly?
0: Well, it is opportunity um this was there was a real burgeoning of this uh, of this radical movement. It needed uh, the exchange of information and ideas. Uh, so the press was the obvious way that that that, that kind of communication and that kind of build-up of momentum could happen. Um, so there's an opportunity there. There are lots of different um, uh, publications that start to start to emerge. So there's there's a chance there. And then you combine that with yes, as you as you refer to, uh, you know, obviously he's got talent. Once he gets the opportunity, you know, he's really able to 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 take it. Um, and he and he has he has uh, um, useful associations as well. I mean, the first thing that he started to write for um, was was uh, the political letters, and William Carpenter ran the, ran those, and they were, you know, these periodical things that came out. But William Carpenter was was an established um, uh, 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 was an established figure in journalism, and then after Carpenter, of course, by the time you get to 1832, you've got Hetherington and Hethering, Henry Hetherington. Uh, was a, again a well established london uh, um, uh, r- radical uh, newspaper man, so he's, he 's he's, he's lucky in the sense that he does have these associations which give him an opportunity and Once he does start writing and begins to build up a little bit of a following, um, he has a short period in Birmingham, but then he comes back to to london and and then on on hetherington 's poor man 's guardian, which was the sort of the top um, selling um radical publication for the sort of lower social ranks um in a you know a very a very sort of popular language and that that kind of uh, populist sort of tone um once he's on there and and he's he's his name is out there then that really that's, that sets him up for the rest of the 1830s really because it provides him with that reputation it provides him with a with a readership uh, and now he's a he's a known he's a known figure so his hope would have been to build on that. Um, once uh, the uh, the Poor Man's Guardian folds in 30, uh, 1835, the idea would have been to, to sort of find other outlets, um, and he, he does for a short time, but um, it doesn't it doesn't sort of go as well as uh, as well as he was expecting. Um, but I, I suppose then with Chartism, once Chartism, which is really the probably the most important popular political mobilization in the whole of the 19th century in Britain, and of course has repercussions overseas as well, um, in America, in Europe, and, and, and in parts of the empire. It's a very important movement. And once that happens, 36, 37, 38, around about that time when it's taking off, this was another opportunity for him. So again, the demand for ideas information there's a, you know the, the 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 explosion of of information really that uh, with, with the press um you know there's another opportunity there as well so it, it was possible to sustain it um uh, but 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 uh, uh, as uh, as i've sort of outlined in the book really there are there are reasons why he wasn't able to do that um but the opportunity Arising and the talent that he had, and then his ability to, to to build and sustain that reputation that he gets, particularly on the Poor Man's Guardian. Those are really the key to his his rise in the 1830s.
1: There's an undertone, though, of frustration for him that you describe because he established this reputation as a radical journalist early on, and he's advocating all of these. Uh, ideas which were very cutting edge for the time, and we'll get into those in just a few minutes. But it, it, the frustration comes from the fact that he wants to be a bit more than a journalist, and this is. And you refer to his efforts to establish his own papers. And I was wondering if you could explain why why those worked. Was that a, a function of the limits of his abilities as an organizer, or was it more a reflection of the environment for uh, publications uh, in, in the 1830s?
0: I think you'd have to say um, both, of those, both of those things had an, had an impact. Um, I think, you know, once he'd worked with people like Carpenter and Hetherington, I mean, he wanted to be them. He wanted to be his own sort of uh, uh, successful entrepreneur in the newspaper business, pushing radical causes and and uh, the, the fact is though that you know once reform is taking off in the 1830s and you know it's quite an overcrowded field um you've got a lot of publications now all sort of um pushing for for uh, and it's all very well getting a high readership but it's sales that it's going to bring you in the money you need the advertising revenue you need the, the you need the business side of it sorted out uh, and as I mentioned, I mean, it is, it is quite an overcrowded field. So trying to establish yourself in that field, unless you you've really got something amazingly special and you're very, very lucky, um, you know, uh, it, it's difficult. There are lots of radical publications that were very short lived, you know, only only a few months or a couple of years and then and then couldn't survive. Um, so, um, uh, you know, of course, there were very, very many others that did survive and lasted a long time and became became well established. But I think that was his that was his his idea um, that that, uh, you know, he he would go on to be the type of figure that, he you know, in, instead of working for them, writing for them, he would actually be writing for himself and owning his own his own titles. And running them and editing them and, and so on. That was his that was his idea. And he had the he probably had the, the the talent to do it in a small way, but on the business side of it, because it was quite difficult, uh, as I mentioned, to establish uh, yourself in, in in an overcrowded field. Um, it, uh, he he wasn't so good maybe on the business side of it. He he tended to be perhaps a little bit over optimistic. Um, and and to to underestimate the difficulty that it would face, plus um you do still have taxes and various other limitations on the radical press because the government of course doesn 't like being criticized and questioned, uh, and so anything that's uh, goes perhaps a little bit too far or gets on the wrong side of um, of of officialdom. Um, is going to is going to face some pressures uh, as well, and he he does blame some of his failures on that type of um, persecution uh, uh, as well. Um, so he he yes he wasn't able to really make the impact that he wanted uh, on the, on that side of things, and it's it's largely because of. Um, perhaps he didn't he didn 't realize how difficult it was organizationally financially i mean you you need an you need investment you need a bit of capital to be able to um, set up and to last through maybe some uh periods of not not so good sales uh, and not so good uh, revenues from advertising and so on and he didn 't quite appreciate uh how difficult that would be and hence the the series of rather short lived and disappointing um uh uh titles that he was associated with sometimes he 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 was co owner sometimes he was owner sometimes he was just editor and worked for others um but all of these things um they they never really lasted very long. Um, and, and, and yes, he was. It made him. It made him bitter. Um, the thing was the the, the reason. The, the the one way in which they can be regarded as a success, however, is um, in in ideas. I mean, in in pushing some very bold and interesting ideas, and, and having an impact on the reform debate. Uh, in, in that sense, I mean, he, he it, it worked. It's just that it, he wasn't really able to make a very comfortable living um, out, out, out of that because of because of the, the, the business and organizational things that we've just been we've just been thinking about.
1: I was wondering if you could speak uh, a bit about those ideas. I mean, what how what was he advocating? How is he promoting? You know, what what sort of changes was he promoting? And and. Was there any sort of evolution in his thinking during this period in the 1830s that that brought him to Chartism, or was he basically fully formed and waiting for something like Chartism to come around?
0: Well, you, Chartism can be seen as a as a, a continuation of earlier radicalism. It, it, the thing that Chartism had was it was it was it had the it had the mass mobilization and the, the you know the huge meetings. The, the infrastructure, the organization, all the various uh, uh, aspects of, um, you know, uh, posters and dress and banners and slogans and all of those things maybe that on a scale that hadn't really been seen before. But, but uh, in terms of its ideas, I mean, the, 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 the main program, the, the six points of the People's Charter, the, those weren't new. They'd been around for, for quite a long time um and uh i mean i can i can just re- remind everybody of what those six points were i mean you've got manhood suffrage which is the main one and this is something that o'brien never departed from that the beginning of any real change was going to be the, the right to vote um for, for 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 all adult males to be able to vote and have a share in uh in in power really in in making the laws and and so on and, and shaping government policies and so on so manhood suffrage is one of the six points and then you've got annual parliaments and the vote by ballot which is a protection you know secret voting so that you'd be free to exercise your right uh, independently equal electoral districts which again goes towards the representation uh, no property qualification for members of parliament so that anyone could 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 become an uh, an MP, and then salaries for for MPs as well, so they'd be paid, so they could could give up their jobs if they wanted, and it meant that working class people would be working class men uh, would be able to would be able to go into Parliament, and um, so those six points. Um, which is the, the really, the, 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 that's the people's charter. Um, if, you, if you take that as a kind of continuation from earlier radicalism, by the time it does take off and you do have a Chartist movement towards the end of the 1830s, uh, you know, O'Brien is familiar with all that stuff. He's very much behind it. He never really departs from it. He's, he, he really stays a Chartist until the end of its life, his life. It's just that he sees that the charter can lead to other things. And so there is an evolution uh, in, his, in his ideas, um, as, you, as, you, as you mentioned, um, and, and this is that he adds to the charter. He has other ideas about what the charter might lead to. Once you've democratized the system of government, it opens up all kinds of possibilities for you to reorganize the economy and society, um, even things like um, communication and the press and uh, the universities and all sorts of things, but we, but you do need to democratise the system of government first in order for you to get these uh, you know uh, social equality and economic uh, opportunities and so on that you're that you're looking for to to have a more uh, a more equal and just kind of uh, kind of Britain. So that's the the long term aim. Is this very ambitious? Uh, idea that you can that you can really change Britain that you can that there can be fundamental change and you won't have the elites in control anymore you won't have unearned privilege you won't have unfair laws you won't have people being excluded from from rights and opportunities um, but you do need the charter first so there's there's a that's always something that that uh, that that he uh that he insisted on I um, he, he never and particularly as I mentioned particularly the vote the vote was the key to getting these wider and broader changes that he, that he had in view. And it, after a while he starts to focus more on the things that the charter will lead to. Uh, and that's where his social and economic agenda comes in.
1: One of the interesting things that you focus on in your book is his relationship to America. And it's a relationship that is, uh, an abstract one in most sense, because he, uh, doesn't uh you know spend you know time there or anything but it, America has this un- unique standing in his mind and this unique place in terms of his uh, uh thinking in terms of how it relates to a lot of these ideas you've talked about and I was wondering if you could expand upon that just a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think uh, there was a lot of interest in America because uh, of course it was it was very it, it was seen in some ways, still in the early 19th century, it was seen as, you know, uh, you know, it was a child of Britain, if you like. It was, you know, British people had created it. And so uh, British laws, British values, even some some even though uh, the Constitution was different, um, there, there, there were similarities uh, with the with the British Constitution. Um, So there was, you know, there was an idea that America um, maybe represented uh, a better type of Britain or maybe a future uh, is some kind of resemblance might be there. It's not that Britain would be like America, but perhaps that Britain could be more like America in the in the in the more positive uh, aspects of or what they thought America was like. Uh, of course, a lot of these people didn't. As you, sorry, go ahead.
1: Uh, I was, I was going to say, I, I like the way you, you summarize it in, in the chapter title, which is "America's Democratic Promise." It, it's the idea yeah. that that it, it that it embodies a lot of what Britain could become, but not that Britain should necessarily as you said become exactly like the United States but that there you have things like uh more expanded franchise no property qualifications to serve in politics and even uh salaries for uh for for mo- for uh, rep- uh representatives and and, and so it, it becomes uh, th- this yeah, th- this you know to Reference, you know, American history, the 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 city on the hill in some ways, even though that doesn't in, in, As you explained it in in O'Brien's mind It doesn't necessarily correspond to the reality of America at that time as well
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think it's a it's one of those um, It's a it's like a model But um, more more in 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 a general way, you know that it that it, that it, that somehow there are some things that America has got right and that Britain still hasn't got right. And so uh, certainly with regard to uh, reform and justice and some of those broader kind of aspiration, uh, uh, yes, that, that there's definitely this notion that uh, that America's got some things right and we could learn. You know, we could learn from some of the things that America is doing. I mean, there are plenty of criticism, uh, negative uh, criticisms of, of of America as well. Um, And and so there's there is a balance to to this, but he's he's sure that um, America has things to teach Britain, but he's equally sure that as his his own reform program matures He can he can also teach America things. I mean, of course a lot of his followers Eventually did come to America and and you know one one place where they set up a, a model community was in Kansas uh, where they tried to live out some of the social and economic um, teachings that O'Brien had developed by by the end of the 1840s and the beginning of the 1850s, um, you know. The, the, so there's there's this kind of interaction. So it's it's not all one way, uh, it, but it but it, yes, America has a very important uh, part in his in his thinking, as it did for many uh, British radicals in that period.
1: We've been talking about. Chartism in terms of its relationship to uh, Brontë O'Brien's uh, life and his career. I was wondering if we could maybe go back and and talk a bit about Chartism generally, like why it emerges, where it comes from, and then delve a bit more into what was his practical role in in Chartism, and and and, and you know what was his. Uh, position within the movement itself, and, and and what did he do during this period of great Chartist ferment in the late eighteen thirties?
0: Yeah, um, well, there there are probably uh, a number of sort of key explanations as to why Chartism did arise. As I mentioned before, there is this view um, among uh, a number of historians that it's it's really a continuation. of of earlier uh, radical uh, um, ideas and radical techniques and and methods and so on. Um, But I think sort of the reason why it happened when it did is probably has a lot to do with disappointment after the 1832 Reform Act, which um, it it was a significant reform and it did open the door, um, as I referred to previously, but it didn't really bring uh, the, the, the fundamental... Shift that a lot of the particularly the lower class uh, reformers had expected, and um, you know the the vote is still restricted um, uh, to a, a very small proportion of the adult male population, um, so access and participation to really the centres of power um, are still uh, are still substantially closed off it doesn't mean though that participation isn't growing because even those of course who couldn't vote could still be politically active. Um, and then there were other things that, that happened, maybe um, uh, sort of the coercive Irish policy, uh, maybe the policy towards uh, you know, the factories and the trade unions. I mean, working men probably had a lot of resentment uh, in this period, and a lot was changing with the Industrial Revolution and the growth of towns. There was a lot of social dislocation and social and economic challenges So taken together, um, the idea of of a movement to get greater change than had previously been granted by the British state, uh, you know, it probably explains why um, Chartism sort of arose at at that time. And with uh, the the, the six points of the Charter, with some established radical leaders, with with the growth of the Chartist press and communication and local chartist bodies and organizational framework for the movement it does take off and it attracts a, a lot of support and as i mentioned it's it's really on a scale that hadn't been seen before in terms of its size and its influence um the government probably isn't too worried uh, overall but there are times when uh, the government does have to respond because it does seem like a like a, a serious challenge to the established order, um, and by 1839, I mean 1839 is one of the peak um, years of agitation, and it really it really shows that that uh, Chartism had had, had arrived, um, and uh, and O'Brien O'Brien was already a celebrity when Chartism was taking off, um, so he was already known, uh, and um, the, the, you know he's he's still writing uh, in 36, 37, 38 and then i think the key breakthrough for him is when he joins the northern star um because the northern star emerges as as the major chartist newspaper and of course it's run by um fergus o'connor uh, and they'd been allies um so and they knew each other supported each other up to this point and so he gets o'brien gets this opportunity to be part of, 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 a, of a, a, a very successful what becomes a very successful radical newspaper uh, and of course his you know when he starts to write for it he's able to both enhance his own reputation but also contribute to the success of the northern star itself so they kind of serve each other's interests uh, and it works okay for a while um for uh, you know unfortunately for o'brien um you know prison uh prison sort of changes changes an awful lot for him when he when he has when he's sent to prison at the beginning of 1840 and that's the beginning really of, of some major difficulties because although he still has a a name he still has celebrity status he still has a following he still has um influence when he comes out of prison uh, so much has changed really for him um personally and politically and of course the breach with with o'connor is very important in that respect as well that his his role as a as one of the major leaders in early chartism he cannot sustain that and he breaks with many of the other chartist leaders in the course of the early and mid 1840s which rather isolates him and and sort of sets him sets him apart Um, He doesn't give up. I mean, he keeps going, but it doesn't mean that certainly his opportunity, for instance, to earn a living from his from his political writing and from his speaking. um, That's that's starting really to be restricted now because he's lost some of those relationships and some of those opportunities that he had before.
1: His imprisonment does serve as. In your book, as the start of this major turning point in his life, I was wondering if you could explain a bit how it was that he ended up being arrested and imprisoned uh, during this peak period of, 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 of Chartist activity.
0: Uh, well, bec- because he was so active and so um, high profile and so important to the movement, um, in 1839, when the government started to get get a little bit more concerned about the potential uh, that the, the Chartist movement was showing, um, the, there was, a, there was a, a, an official backlash. Uh, there, there were violent outbreaks in 1839. Um, how much they were uh, invented, of course, is still a matter for um, debate among historians. How, how, ver- how violent they were, how serious a challenge they really did pose to the established order. That's a matter for, for, for opinion and, and, and uh, disagreement among historians. But the fact is there was violence. Um, and uh, so the government is seeking to strike a blow at the movement and maybe uh, remove its momentum and put some of its leaders in prison, you know, wrap them on the knuckles a little bit. And, and so O'Brien is one of those who who is singled out. Um, he, he, uh, he wins a victory to start with, though, because his first trial... Um, which is up in the northeast of England. Um, after a run of, of, of meetings and speeches and so on, he he's acquitted. He he um, he uh, conducts his own defence and being very good with words and very smart and uh, able to think on his feet and so on, he's able to convince the, uh, the, the the jury that they shouldn't they shouldn't convict. But within weeks, he's tried again in a different place. Um, and what's, what's quite interesting about the second trial, which was in Liverpool um, in uh, February of 1840, uh, what's quite interesting about that is that he's charged with sedition, but it doesn't actually relate to any specific meeting or speech or any specific event. It's really a run of meetings and events and speeches. And so it's quite difficult to come up with an effective defense um, when, you're, when, when, when it's that nature of charge, uh, and he also feels let down. He thinks that um, he says later he thinks that some of the other chartists are going to come to his defence. They're going to speak for him. He's going to call them as witnesses. Maybe maybe uh, there, there'd been some promise of uh, uh, support with his legal fees and things like this. It's not very clear, but there are a lot of accusations afterwards um, that he'd been uh, that he'd been let down, uh, and so he's sent to prison. Um, eighteen months in prison um it affects his health it affects his morale um it affects his uh, um, it, of course it affects his future hugely um um and uh, and and when he comes out he's really um he's not he's not toned down his ideas at all he's still just as radical and bold and forthright in terms of his ideas as he'd been before but the situation has changed um he's he 's lost uh Certain opportunities, maybe as I said before, certain opportunities for earning money as a writer and a speaker. The breach with O'Connor is is crucially important because O'Connor by this time is really rising as the the main national figurehead for the movement and the national star, which is O'Connor's uh, newspaper, um, uh, is is, the, is really the main organ nationally as well for, for the for the Chartist movement and very important to sort of coordinate all the different localities and all the different aspects. Because Chartism is quite a varied movement. It's not a uniform movement by any means. There's a lot of local variation. So to keep it together, you need something like the National Star. And O'Brien, uh, uh, O'Connor, sorry, uh, O'Connor would also argue that you need one leader. And so he's the one who thinks, well, for the good of the movement, I have to be the main man. And, uh, that also, there's a certain, um, uh, ego and ambition about that too. And there are those historians who, who think that, uh, O'Connor was, was pretty much a disaster, um, for, for, for the movement. But by the, there's, there's also those who think that he was right. You know, that you did need some unifying force, some unifying leader, figure. And O'Brien, if he, if he tried to challenge, um, O'Connor as this sort of national leader. Well, there was really only going to be one winner, and that was not going to be O'Brien. Um, he didn't. He didn't have that same charisma, that same uh, control over over a newspaper as well. Um, he didn't have that same organizational ability probably either. Um, and and so if he, if he was going to be one of the main leaders of, of Chartism, he was going to have to accept O'Connor's overall leadership and the fact that there personal relationship was starting to falter anyway because of the period in prison and the various, uh, accusations that arose out of that. Um, and O'Connor, O'Connor really couldn't allow somebody to make accusations against him because of his own status as leader and his wish to sustain that he couldn't allow others to, um, and O'Brien wasn't the only one by any means that fell foul of, uh, of O'Connor's uh, uh, anger and, and uh, sort of counter charges against and There was a very sort of unsavory exchange of, of uh, you know, different charges and claims and counterclaims and so on that went on, um, which, which probably damaged the movement as well. But after prison, um, uh, when O'Brien got out um, in September of uh, 1841, after prison, it, it, it's going to be very difficult for him, and, and, that, and that proved to be the case.
1: And yet, while the last two decades of his life really represent a, a diminishment of his fortunes compared to the 1830s you describe in your book that he still has this very large standing among radicals in, uh, throughout England and and how he these people had this great uh, Uh, devotion to him as as a uh, writer and activist.
0: Yeah, he does retain a following um, and eventually there will be a very important organization, the National Reform League, at the end of the 1840s that he sets up um, and it's linked in with some of his newspaper ventures uh, as well Um, and there are branches of the National Reform League around the country, but the biggest one is in London. I mean, we're, we're not talking about you know, thousands and thousands of, of, we're talking about, you know, a fairly small uh, number, hun- hundreds really, um, but they're very committed, and in their own communities, they're, they're, they're influential as well. And they're, because he's still got this very ambitious program, because he's hes combined the six points of the charter with this social and economic program to do with things like the poor law and uh, uh, the land, and uh, adjusting the currency and taxation and debts. Uh, I mean, he was, he was really the foremost uh, uh, champion of nationalization of the land, uh, to, you know, to, to make sure that it would be a resource for the whole people, and changing the system of currency. Uh, these are very bold ideas, uh, and ideas about public marts as well, where you could exchange goods and, and, and products and services and so on and making credit available for people so that um, they could they could get some land or they could invest in some sort of industrial enterprise or on a small scale, whatever it might be. So he, he has this very far-reaching vision of, the, you know, this is how you can get social equality. Um, this is how you can get... Economic justice, and a lot. I think a lot of people bought into that and were interested in it, and some of them, of course, even tried to live it out. As I mentioned, in, for example, in in model small model communities where they tried to live out these ideas. So he's a, and he's also somebody who's who's drawing together um, intellectual forces, um, you know, in in a way that that maybe other uh, radical leaders were not. I mean, it's not just his own. His own experiences and his own preferences that are affecting his political uh, programme. You know, he's drawing on a radical heritage, as I mentioned before, before Chartism, uh, actually. You know, he's drawing on a lot of those things that go back, um, that these sort of established um radical culture going back to people like thomas Paine and william cobbett i mean cobbett had a lot of followers too still in the 1830s and 1840s and so there's there's a and, and the link with, with with some of cobbett's ideas uh helps uh o'brien too also you know industrialization urbanization new ideas about class uh ideas of in the rights of labor and what that should mean, you know, capitalism as an exploitative system. Uh, Again, you know, some of that stuff is is part of uh, O'Brien's thinking too. So anyone who's affected by those things would have found in O'Brien things that they could relate to, things that they could, again, read about, think about, Um, and other aspects of history like the French Revolution. I mean, the fact that um, O'Brien popularizes a very uh, positive view of the early French Revolution. Robespierre, you know, to, to O'Brien, is a, is a democratic champion. You know, Robespierre is almost like a, a model chartist, you know, who has a lot to teach British radicals. And he writes a book about Robespierre. He, he gives lectures on Robespierre. You know, so in all these ways, he's combining lots of different trends um, uh, that, that would have appealed to quite a number of people. They would have at least... Given him a hearing, they would have at least read some of his things. Even if they didn't agree with all of it, um, they would have, uh, you know, that there would have been an opportunity there for O'Brien to to um, uh, sustain this this following that he had. So he's he's a he is a very important figure, and it and it goes on. I mean, some of his followers after his death they continue to be active. They get involved in other movements. Um, Some of them associate with people like Karl Marx, you know, when Marx is in London. So there are lots of these different avenues for influence that still exist, even though O'Brien personally is suffering poverty, is suffering uh, bouts of ill health, and he's probably a bit depressed at times as well. There's There's a certain melancholy that comes through in some of his writing. His letters, uh, I mean, some of his letters are very depra- depressing in their, uh, and, and depressed <laughs> in their tone. Uh, so there's, there's a, you know, there's, there's, despite the, the hardship, there, there are ways that he still has a certain appeal and, and, and an ability to, to carry on his influence.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: at the moment i'm i'm doing a um, i'm doing a book about um it, it's really a continuation of some of the things that i've i've been talking about uh, i'm I'm very interested in british attitudes towards america uh, in the nineteenth century and how that changed. I did a book a few years ago um about uh, british british radicals and their changing views of America in the nineteenth century and i'm interested in taking that a little bit further maybe with a specific focus on the American civil war and reconstruction period and what that really meant to, to people in Britain, uh, and especially um, wh- wh- why they thought that that was an important war uh, for them. You know, why, why the, why the outcome of the American civil war and reconstruction would have had an impact on, on, on them and on their lives. And so I I'm, I'm interested in maybe pushing that a little bit further and, and, uh, and seeing seeing some of the the, the, the linkages, the continuities, in, in, in some of in some of that period, but, but particularly 1860s, 1870s, that kind of period.
1: Hmm. Sounds like fascinating uh, work there.
0: Well, I hope so. It's still <laughs> still early, it's still early stages, but um, I'm, I'm hoping that I just did an article about maybe some of the religious uh, the religious reasons why there was such interest. In the American crisis of the uh, of secession and civil war and reconstruction and and what it was that that maybe uh, you know if, if there were any religious motivations for for getting interest, I found some very interesting material about um, the episcopal uh, church in America and how it split and how it came together again and obviously with with Britain uh, still having a state church, the Anglican Church, and regarding the episcopal church as a as a kind of uh, you know as a sort of outgrowth. Of the uh, of the established church in, uh, in the Church of England, uh, I'm int- I mean I-, I got very interested in the way that that might have shaped a perspective about America and the crisis that America was going through. So I just recently uh, wrote a- wrote a thing about that, which hopefully will be published later this year.
1: How interesting, Professor Turner. Thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: Thank you very much.